Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 83, God Bless the Child. Before we get into today's debate between a Reformed Baptist and an Eastern Orthodox on the topic of infant baptism, I've got a couple of important announcements to make. First, the Theapologetics podcast and blog have now moved to their new shared home at www.theapologetics.com. I've republished all the old episodes there and have published the latest ones there too. Uh, it's where you'll find this episode, in fact. Uh, if you subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, um, you don't have any work to do. iTunes has already been pointed to the new feed. If you subscribe via Zoom, you'll have to unsubscribe, search the marketplace for the apologetics, and resubscribe to the new entry in the marketplace. Uh, and if you subscribe to the podcast by any other means, be sure to unsubscribe from the existing feed and add a new subscription to the feed at http colon forward slash forward slash www.theapologetics.com forward slash question mark feed equals podcast. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Uh, probably just easier to go to www.theapologetics.com and click on the podcast subscription link on the right hand side of the page. Now, I'm going to continue to publish new episodes to the existing Podbean feed only for a couple of months or so, so make sure that you make the switch over to the new feed as soon as possible. I've also begun blogging again at my new home on the web. Uh, having a unified home for both the podcast and the blog has kind of gotten me interested in blogging again. Uh, and over time, I'm going to publish some of the posts that I wrote at the old blog uh, here again at my new one, the, the ones that I think are valuable enough to republish. And I just want to say a huge thanks uh, to the listener whose gracious donation this morning makes it possible to pay my web host for a year of hosting. Uh, that, that company had offered to uh, do it sort of pro bono until uh, I was capable of affording it, and now I can, um, and my web host is uh, thrilled. So I just want to thank you so much. The second announcement I have uh, is one that I made yesterday, actually, on my blog. Uh, for an upcoming debate between myself and Joshua Whips, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, I'm sure that I am, but anyway, he's otherwise known as Razor's Kiss, and we're going to be debating the topic of annihilationism. A couple of days ago, a friend and listener of mine had emailed him, asking if he'd be interested in debating the topic with me, and it, very quickly we had all the details finalized except for the, da the date, which is tentatively somewhere in June. Uh, but the debate proposition that we finalized is this. The final punishment of the risen wicked will be annihilation, the permanent end to the conscious existence of the entire person. Now, I'm going to be affirming it, uh, and obviously, uh, well, perhaps not obviously, but uh, Joshua will be denying it. Uh, he'll be representing the traditional view of hell. Uh, more specifically, the, uh, the, uh, reformed con the confessionally reformed view of hell and the soul as defined in the Westminster Confession and London, London Baptist Confession of 1689. Um, now, I was overjoyed also when I found out that my friend Dee Dee Warren, host of the Preterist podcast, is willing to moderate, so that's going to be great. And she's going to be asking us questions at the end on behalf of those who sent her questions for us in advance. So make sure that if you've got any questions that you want to ask either me or Joshua, make sure to email her with your question uh, and the participant that you want asked. Um, the reason being, one of us, the one to whom the question is asked, will have more time than the person to whom it's not asked. Uh, you can email Dee Dee at preteristpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and you can get more details of the debate at my website or at choosinghats.com, where Joshua contributes. 
uh, Joshua is a presuppositional apologist, and uh, which is something that I kind of lean towards. And he, he intends to show that my view, quote, is impossible to hold intelligibly, unquote. So this should be quite interesting. Uh, and as a fan of, like I said, as a fan of presuppositionalism, I'm very intrigued. So look forward to that. Hopefully, you'll, you know, hopefully it'll spark your interest. Um, it'll be a couple of months out, and I'm going to be kind of shutting up about annihilationism for a while uh, on the blog and on the podcast so that I can concentrate on preparing for, for that debate. Those of you who've been bugged on the Facebook page and elsewhere by my repeated posts about it should hopefully be encouraged by that. Anyway, that's about all I've got, uh, so let's go ahead and play the next promo in my rotation for Real Apologetics and the Provocative Microphone. Why can't we try hey, this is Jamin Hubner for realapologetics.org and the host of the Provocative Microphone. Real Apologetics has all the basic goals of defending the faith and building up the church, but we give special attention to how this is done. We believe that our theology determines our effectiveness as Christian apologists. We are reformed in our soteriology, covenantal in our hermeneutic, and presuppositional in our method. So check out realapologetics.org. It really does just so happen, uh, it's a coincidence, that Jamin's ministry would be next in the promo rotation, um, him being a participant in today's debate. I, I didn't plan it that way, I promise. Uh, but Jamin appeared on the The Apologetics podcast back in March of 2011 to discuss the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. And he started podcasting again recently after what I think was a few months of a hiatus. Uh, and hopefully he doesn't mind sharing. I don't know why he would since he posted on his blog publicly yesterday. But Jamin is getting married in a couple of months. Uh, so I just want to issue a hearty congratulations to Jamin and encourage you all to check out Real Apologetics and the Provocative Microphone of the Chris Christian Religion podcast at realapologetics.org. And with that, let's move into today's debate. His mama may have. God bless the child that's got his own that's got his own As the words I'm speaking are being recorded, it's Friday, April 6th, 2012. But whenever it is that you're listening, hello and thank you so much for tuning in to what is now the seventh The Apologetics Podcast debate, this time dealing with the question of infant baptism between a Baptist, pro uh, Baptist Protestant and an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Jamin Hubner is my Protestant guest today. Jamin is creator of realapologetics.org and host of the provocative microphone of the Christian Religion Podcast, author of The Saving Grace of God and The Portable Presuppositionalist. He's instructor at John Witherspoon College and at the Black Hills Bible Institute and contributor to the Alpha and Omega Ministries blog. Jamin, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Chris. Reverend Lawrence Kleenewerk is once again my Eastern Orthodox guest. Lawrence is editor of the Eastern Greek Orthodox New Testament. He's the rector of St. Innocent's Orthodox Church in Eureka, California, serves on the faculty of Humboldt State University and Euclid, and is the managing editor of the Orthodox Answers website. Lawrence, thank you so much for joining me as well. Thanks. Good to be back. With those introductions out of the way, let me briefly explain today's debate. The proposition is this. Infants are not the proper subjects of the ordinance of baptism. Jamin Hubner affirms the proposition, and Lawrence Kleenewerk denies it. They have agreed to the following format. Jamin will begin with a 15-minute opening statement affirming the proposition, followed by Lawrence's 15-minute opening denying it. Jamin will have 10 minutes for his rebuttal, followed by Lawrence's 10-minute rebuttal. Jamin and Lawrence will have two rounds of cross-examination, each beginning with Lawrence cross-examining Jamin for 10 minutes and ending with Jamin cross-examining Lawrence. 
Following cross-examination, Lawrence will present his five-minute closing statement, and Jamin will close out the debate proper with his five-minute closing. And then we'll have about 30 minutes of question and answers in which I'll ask four questions to each of Jamin and Lawrence, alternating between them. The one to whom I pose a question will have two and a half minutes to answer, and his opponent will have 60 seconds to follow up. That'll wrap things up. So with all that out of the way, I'll open briefly in prayer and we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so very much for bringing us together today to discuss this very important topic. Uh, in the Great Commission, the Lord said to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we know uh, from that and numerous other passages that baptism is an important topic. It's a command of the Lord. I just pray that you would guide us into truth, help us to understand whom it is that you do intend as the proper subjects of, ba- uh, subjects of baptism. Uh, but I also pray, Father, that you would keep us respectful and loving toward one another in our discussion today. Um, not only as a testimony to other believers, but also to those outside the faith who, for whatever reason, might be listening in. Help, help them to see that there's something unique about Christians when we, uh, when we discuss uh, our disagreements. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, so whenever you're ready, Jamin, I'll start your uh, 15-minute timer as soon as you begin speaking for your opening statement. Okay, well, thank you, Chris, and thank you, Dr. Uh, Clean Work, for, and that is how you say the name, right? Clean Work, uh, if I uh, pronounce it right, uh, for joining us tonight. Uh, okay. Um, clean Work the, is fine. The question, clean Work, okay. Uh, the question of tonight's debate is, uh, infants are or are not the subject, uh, the proper subjects of the ordinance of baptism. And I'll be arguing that infants are not because the scriptures teach that believers, those who are old enough to repent of their sin and have faith in Jesus Christ, are the proper subjects of baptism. The new covenant ordinance of baptism is instituted in Matthew 28 by the Lord Jesus. Therefore, when you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. The words baptizing and teaching are two participles of means, so that the way by which Jesus' followers were to make disciples was to baptize and to teach. Now, the Paedo-Baptist wants to put a wall between these two, so that somehow baptism is to be given to those who cannot be taught Jesus' commands. But the question is, are there really adequate grounds for this, and is this how the early church understood this command? The short answer is no. Jesus' followers immediately went out making disciples by teaching and baptizing those who could respond to the gospel call. It made no sense to baptize infants since they are not capable of understanding the gospel and repenting of their sin. That is why no infant baptisms occurred during apostolic times. Already in the second chapter of Acts, uh, 3,000 responded to Peter's preaching and were baptized. Notice what Peter says in verse 38 to 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance and baptism go together in this verse, two sides of the same coin. As a result, verse 41 records that those who received his word were baptized. Acts 8.12 continued this pattern. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the the kingdom of God in the name of Christ, they were baptized. In Acts 10, after Peter sees the pouring out of the Spirit, he says, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Spirit? The pattern in the early church is clear. Baptism, while sometimes used as a summary of one's salvation and conversion experience, does indeed follow the change in a person's heart precisely because baptism is a symbol of that change, a token of conversion in our union with Christ. 
The authors of Scripture assume that those who have been baptized have also personally trusted Christ and experienced salvation. Galatians 3.27 is a good example. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul assumes that if you haven't, that if you've been baptized, you have put on Christ. But we should also notice that he does not say as many infants have put on Christ. And he certainly doesn't say as many of you as were baptized have parents that put on Christ. And even more clearly, he does not say as many of you that put on Christ did so because you were physically baptized as if teaching baptismal regeneration. Paul assumes, practices, and teaches what is popularly called believer's baptism. Romans 6, 3-4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death. Again, the author assumes that those who have been baptized have truly been changed. Paul could not have said, All infants who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Unless, of course, these infants acknowledged Christ as Lord, repented of their sins, and embraced the gospel. And while this text, like Acts 2.38 and others, are used by Eastern Orthodox to support baptismal regeneration, the text simply teaches that baptism signifies both the death and resurrection of Christ for the one being baptized. One is reminded of Philip and the eunuch in Acts 8, where they both went down into the water and then came up out of the water. Colossians 2.12 asserts something similar. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Now, we should also note that Christian baptism is an ordinance that is established for the new covenant. Those who are baptized are members of the new covenant. So the question is, who are those in the new covenant? Hebrews chapter 8 answers this very clearly. Those who are in the New Covenant know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest. That's a direct quote. This is in contrast to the old Mosaic Covenant, where those who bore the covenant sign may have knew the Lord or they may not have. Part of what makes the New Covenant new and better, as the author of the Hebrews argues, is that it is no longer mixed. He says, quote, no longer shall they say to one another, know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord, unquote. This, of course, is consistent with the entire biblical testimony of the meaning and unfolding of the New Covenant, and, of course, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic Covenant. Many Paedobaptists try to apply the Abrahamic Covenant to today's body of believers in order to support infant baptism, because Abraham's physical descendants were given the sign of a covenant, circumcision. But our friends fail to understand just how these promises are fulfilled today. Scripture clearly teaches that the children of Abraham in the New Covenant are those born of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Romans 9, 6, and 8 says, They are not all Israel who descended from Israel. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. The whole point is to say that they are not all spiritual Israel who are descended from Israel physically. Galatians 4 says the same in talking of two sons of Abraham. Verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time... As at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. There is no question that the children of the promise that are counted as Abraham's offspring are born of the spirit, not those born of the flesh. Covenant children under the new covenant are spiritual children, not physical children. They are those who have been spiritually buried with Christ and those who have circumcised hearts. 
They are those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are members of the New Covenant. It's all the same group here. That's why Paul said earlier in chapter 3, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Not the promise by baptism in Jesus Christ might be given to those who are baptized or anything like that. The text also doesn't say the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to their physical believing parents. We keep going into verse 27 and 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this distinction is also found in the Gospels. John 1, 12 through 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But if the Eastern Orthodox position is true, where the physical act of baptism is what changes a person's heart, ex opera operandi, from the work done, then certainly John is wrong, because those who have the right to become children of God are born of the will of man, because it is the will of man to baptize an infant that caused that person to become regenerated and a child of God. Here's what Bishop uh, Callistos Ware said. What happened, and this is a quote, what happened to the first Christians on the day of Pentecost happens also to each of us. When immediately following our baptism, we are in the Orthodox practice anointed with chrism or myron. From the moment of our baptism and chrismation, uh, the Holy Spirit, together with Christ, comes to dwell in the most innermost shrine of our heart. However careless and indifferent the baptized may be in their subsequent life, this indwelling present of the spirit, uh, presence of the spirit is never totally withdrawn. But unless we cooperate with God's grace, unless through the exercise of our free will we struggle to perform the commandments, it is likely that the spirits present within us will remain hidden and unconscious. Orthodox Way 99-100. As you can see, <clears throat> my friend and I have a very different understanding of salvation. In my perspective, God is completely sovereign over salvation and gives saving grace to whomever he pleases on his time according to his will. But in the Eastern Orthodox position, God is obligated to give saving grace to whomever the Eastern Orthodox Church immerses under water. But I think it should be clear to us that this is not grace at all. Grace cannot be demanded, and grace does not work like a machine where if we perform physical works A or B or C, then grace comes out. Grace to be grace must be freely given. And as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith, not through baptism, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now you might be wondering, why am I talking about baptismal regeneration in a debate about infant baptism? Well, that's a good question, and I would never, and I would never bring up the subject were it not for the fact that Eastern Orthodox theologians somehow find baptismal regeneration as support for infant baptism. Here are the words of Orthodox theologian Jordan Bajis. How are these young ones saved from the sin they have received from Adam's race? They are saved through the regenerative power of baptism and the faith of the church. Now, it's unclear whether Bajis believes adults are saved in the same way. If they are, then it is unclear why baptismal regeneration is specifically a reason to baptize infants. If the very act of the church immersing a person in water is what will ultimately save them from the wrath of God and punish them for the sin, or will lead to that, then that is a reason to baptize absolutely everyone possible, regardless of age. If it is not, and the act of baptism only regenerates infants and not adults, then that distinction must be proved. Where does scripture teach this? 
That's a very hard distinction to find in Scripture, just as regenerative baptism is also hard to find as well. Now, I'd be more than willing to re- uh, respond to orthodox arguments for baptismal regeneration, uh, going to Titus 3.5, John 3.5, Romans 6, etc., but I should limit myself to the subject of tonight's debate. Now, one of the most common arguments for infant baptism, especially for Eastern Orthodox, is the baptism of households. Since entire households are baptized, this is supposed to support infant baptism. But this argument fails, first of all, because no infants are said to be in any of these households. Second of all, and this is more important, in almost all of these cases, the members of these households cannot be infants. Let's go through these, uh, a, a few of them here. Uh, the family of the Philippian jailer were baptized after Peter preached, quote, the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Verse 34 also says, he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God, unquote. Now, this is Acts 16. How is it possible for a five-month-old baby to rejoice because the father converted to Christianity? And why would anyone in the household rejoice at their father's conversion while they remain in their sins and in rejection of the very same word that was spoken to them? The fact is, this is household faith, just like we read earlier in John 4, uh, when the Roman official said, and he himself believed uh, in all his household. First uh, Corinthians one sixteen is quoted the household of Stephanos, but usually Orthodox fail to mention sixteen fifteen in the same work, which says the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia. Again, the whole household here are being uh, not just being baptized, but they're understanding and embracing the gospel. Acts chapter ten, the conversion of Cornelius and his household, often cited by Eastern Orthodox. Notice what these baptized people are doing. Having heard the word, 1044, having received the Holy Spirit, having spoken in tongues, verse 46. As at Pentecost, they're described as believers, which is implied in verse 17, uh, 1117, and having repented, 1118. So, since infants cannot hear the word, speak in tongues, believe and repent, it's evident that Luke does not intend for his readers to assume that infants were involved in the baptism described here in Acts 1048. Now, the household of Lydia doesn't have much information. Uh, but given the pattern of Scripture, there's simply no basis to conclude that this was anything other than the household faith and baptism. It would be a radical departure for the early church to start baptizing unrepentant individuals, like infants, and have household baptisms without household faith. Now, as for the historical argument, we should also uh, question my opponent's position. First of all, there are no infant baptisms recorded until possibly, not certainly, the second half of the second century. That's a long time. Second of all, during that period in the, in the second century, we have the early church practicing believers' baptism just like it was in the New Testament. We, we could look at the Didache, Justin Martyr's Apology, Aristides' Apology. I don't have time to quote uh, all of these at this point. Maybe we will later, but they all support believers' baptism. Now, there are many other arguments that we don't have time to address. Uh, Many of them include topologies between the Exodus under Moses and Noah's flood and how these facts of history and parallels uh, to baptism today should establish who should be baptized. But the simple fact is, none of these texts have to do with infant baptism, nor are they the best place to get information about who should be baptized. So my challenge to my opponent this evening is his hermeneutic. Is he interpreting scripture rightly or creatively and through the lens of certain traditions? And can he provide positive support for infant baptism? That's very important since infant baptism is neither commanded nor recorded as happening anywhere in Scripture or apostolic times. 
The burden of proof is on Dr. Cleanwork, and I want to thank him and Chris State for putting on this debate tonight. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Jamin. Um, Lawrence, when you begin speaking, I'll go ahead and start your 15-minute timer. Okay, uh, thank you for uh, agreeing to this debate, and uh, I know you've been there, done that on this particular uh, topic, and I think it's uh, going to be useful to um, have maybe a different approach as you engage not a fellow a Protestant, but in this case an Orthodox uh, on this topic. As in uh, last time, which is about two weeks ago, I took the negative on uh, on a debate, and so I, I have to do the same today. And the, uh, the, the proposition, again, is infants are not the proper subjects of the ordinance of baptism. So it gives me a chance to also be positive by simply uh, uh, arguing that infants are, in fact, and indeed, the proper subjects of baptism. And here I should obviously, but perhaps it's needed, clarify that infants here means the infants that come from households, of believers, people that uh, live the Christian faith and are committed to give that faith to their children. Now, perhaps it's useful um, uh, to me to give a, a personal angle to this because I believe that uh, Jamin uh, is, uh, uh, does not have children. In my case, um, I am a father, you might say in, in both senses, I have, I have two boys, uh, ages uh, two years old and seven months. Uh, I'm also an ordained presbyter or priest, so I actually baptized uh, my own uh, children. I chrismated them. I uh, serve them Holy Communion uh, every Sunday. I see them grow and pray. I have baptized adults and um, and many children, of course. And I have to say, and this is kind of a, a pastoral uh, sharing, is that I've had more qualms with adults coming to be baptized than with children of believers. Uh, my son, who is two years old, uh, uh, tells me and believes that Abba, God, is good. And, um, and it's obvious to me that one who uh, is going to, to teach these uh, pupils, these disciples, uh, about reality is going to tell them that there is a God who is good. And they will believe. They have faith, as I will explain. Now, this debate uh, may be interesting to compare with uh, another uh, debate, the so-called intramural debates uh, within the walls between Protestant, Reformed, Sola Scriptura Christians. Um, it may be interesting to, for a listener to listen to R.C. Sproul, uh, you know, um, who had a debate. I know James White did one with uh, Bill Shishko, and uh, uh, Jamin uh, Huebner also did other debates. What's interesting to me is that there is a bit of a deadlock in these debates when uh, Reformed or Protestant Christians look at the New Testament and they try to arrive at a very decisive conclusion um, they admit often that it's tough, it's a little bit vague, it's a bit indecisive, that there's a lot of arguments from silence. And and in fact, often, and I think here about, uh, say, Reformed Baptists and uh, Presbyterians, they agree not to break communion because they, re- they realize that that is a, a difficult subject. And so I'll bring this up 
because um, anyone listening to my debate on Sola Scriptura will remember that I, I made the argument that indeed the scriptures uh, contain mater- materially and sufficiently the proclamation of the saving gospel about Jesus Christ our Lord, but that it does not include the details uh, or instructions on how the inner life of the church, especially the mysteries or sacraments, are to be given. That uh, I made the case that uh, Paul, St. Paul, talks about uh, what he received, this, this tradition language, when referring to the way things are done, uh, the Eucharist, uh, and uh, I would argue baptism. And as we know, St. Basil also made the case that uh, these things which deal with the inner life of the church, these these mysteries of the kingdom, as we call them in, in the East, those things are not uh, in the scriptures. They are pearls for those who are in the church, which is why it is indeed useful to refer to tradition in this case to, at the very least, uh, at the very least uh, clarify uh, what was done uh, by the apostles. And I will address some of the, the claims made uh, during... Um, my colleague's uh, opening statement. In general, it is true that uh, this debate centers on on the covenant and the sign of the covenant or the seal of the co- of the covenant. And the argument, in a nutshell, and it was well uh, expressed by by my colleague here, is that yes, there's household baptism. The point, though, that I think needs to be made, uh, as was. Uh, done is that there's this concept of, of a concept of a household faith, and this is exactly the Old Testament pattern. That household uh, is this this unit. Uh, there's a family unit, and that God deals with family units, and that a household has faith, and that obviously, if infants are present, they will inherit this faith, and they will manifest it as they become older. So even though one can debate from silence um, whether uh, the language um, did include infants, but the principle of households and household faith is there. Something that, um, uh, of course, is brought forward by those who support uh, infant baptism from various uh, Christian traditions is this language from Scripture, which is found in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, when St. Paul writes, I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, that all passed through the sea, all were baptized in Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same supernatural food. And it says, um, so that we see that this language, that, that this Red Sea experience where they were all, including infants, of course, baptized uh, in Moses as they followed Moses as their head through the collapse of the Red Sea. Um, that uh, this is a type of Christ. We are baptized into Christ and he leads us through uh, also the collapse of the, of the elements uh, as Hebrews 1 tells us that really only Christ is eternal. Only those who are in Christ live and remain and there is therefore no salvation outside Christ or no salvation outside the body of Christ. And the body of Christ, of course, is the church. It's also the Eucharist. Another verse which is brought forward, I think, usefully is Colossians 2.11. You have come to fullness of life in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were baptized with him in baptism. Here we see that circumcision is indeed uh, compared uh, to baptism. Uh, of course, infants were uh, circumcised. And so uh, I think the, the very clear claim uh, of those who want to just look at the New Testament evidence is that it would be an amazing discontinuity if suddenly, uh, though there, there is a household of faith, however, uh, there is suddenly this exclusion of infants and children and that such a discontinuity, a radical change from the pattern that we see of God dealing with family units would have to be explained, would have to, to have uh, more evidence than silence. However, uh, I do want to also bring some other uh, evidence at this point. Um, and uh, I will need to signal if uh, I am out of time, a vocal signal. And uh, I will continue otherwise uh, in my next session. But first, children are disciples. A disciple, mathetis in Greece, is a pupil. And uh, children can, in fact, be taught they are disciples and they will learn the faith. Secondly, children have faith. Uh, what is faith? We can discuss the definition in the scriptures. Um, and we will see that children, in fact, have Faith. I'm going to read here a very short uh, excerpt from someone else's uh, writings, which says that instead of considering scripture, uh, Baptists resort to rationalism, scoffing at the idea that infants can have faith. Yet scripture even speaks of infants not only having faith, but exercising it. John the Baptist, who leaps for joy in the presence of Christ, Jeremiah who was sanctified before birth, David who was made to hope even when being a suckling or even Christ. These are not unique examples. God is indeed praised by babes and sucklings, Psalm 8.2. And Christ refers to this in order to rebuke the Pharisees for complaining at the praise of young children. Children, of course, don't need to repent. They are, as the Lord says, in the state where we need to be. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 3, calling to him the child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn or you repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And indeed, children I, at a young age can say, I am sorry, and they can repent. Finally, it is quite clear to me as a father that children will have faith because we will teach them to have that certainty of hope. They will confess their, their faith until it is hijacked or it is suppressed by some external factor or through neglect. As Proverbs says very clearly, Proverbs 22 verse 6, we read, train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. This is, uh, I believe, a very important text and principle of wisdom to guide us as we reflect on this decision to baptize our little disciples, uh, the children. And so, not surprisingly, all of the ancient churches, from Armenia to Ethiopia to Greece and, and, and 
everywhere practice infant baptism. And in fact, if we do discuss the testimony of the early post-apostolic authors, we discover that this is the case. Origen, whom we, we discussed his importance uh, in the previous debate, says that the infants are baptized and that this is uh, the practice of the church from the apostles. So this is very important uh, to uh, look at this testimony. Again, um, Hippolytus of Rome, who offers a, a compilation of very early practices, also testifies that infants were baptized. My third point, very importantly, is about salvation. Children from birth need to be delivered, to be rescued, to be saved, is the same term, from the power of death. The only way to be saved is to be united to Christ, to be joined to the body of Christ. It's the normative way. As the Apostle Peter writes, baptism saves you today. As the Lord commands in John chapter 6, we need to, to eat his body and drink in blood, his blood to have life in us. And so children need to be incorporated to Christ because they are born from the will of the flesh, which is our human will, and they need to be transplanted into the immortal body of Christ. Can the unbaptized be saved? Uh, by God's grace, of course, but the normative way, the way to have that assurance that we desire and need as parents, which is given to us by the Lord and by the church, is, of course, to, to baptize and commune the children. And in this, of course, this case, only the Orthodox uh, immerse uh, the children. Uh, they anoint, we anoint uh, the newly baptized, we commune them, and there is no difference whatsoever between the baptismal service of an adult or a, ch or a, or a child. This is very important to, to notice. And indeed, when the child has been baptized, as I've done so many times, the, uh, the presbyter who did the, the baptism, uh, takes the child and the, and the parents and the, the sponsors who have confessed that this faith was going to be given, this hope, this assurance, and sings, as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and this is indeed what we believe has been accomplished when the a child is baptized. And uh, these are the main points. I will uh, uh, have a few more uh, as we wrap up, especially uh, my concern with this arbitrary, uh, then, this uh, man-centered a line which has to be placed at some age to allow someone to come forward when in fact the Lord himself said that the children should not be uh, prevented from coming forward. And those who have children who teach them the faith know that they desire to come forward. In fact, my boy is the first to come forward to receive Holy Communion with joy. Okay. Uh, thank you, Lawrence. So now, Jamin, when you begin talking, I'll start your 10-minute timer for your rebuttal. Okay, well, what you, uh, th thank you, uh, Mr. Laurent. Uh, that was a very, uh, very concise and what, I, in, my, in my opinion, it's a very, it's a summary of about every argument for infant baptism I've ever heard. And so I'm going to try to go through this pretty briefly. Uh, Mr. Laurent said, um, he has had more, and I appreciate the pastoral uh, aspect that he brings into this debate. That's very useful. 
But he says he has had more qualms with adults than children of believers. Okay, uh, but the question is why? And maybe that's something we should think about. Maybe we shouldn't baptize a person until they actually understand what they're confessing. A confession of faith is very important. He uh, says there's a deadlock in debates and says there's a lot of, uh, we both in imprecision and vague. I'm, I'm speaking generally between paedobaptists and baptists. But my question is, what isn't vague? What do we know? What does the scripture actually say? What is clear? What is contained in scripture? And that's believer's baptism. Some things are vague. Yes, we can't agree on that, but we need to establish what things are clear. He cited 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Uh, he didn't, he didn't reference that. He referred to it talking about uh, tradition because, uh, remember, me and my opponent do not agree uh, on some basic things. Uh, I'm a Protestant, and I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, sola scriptura. Uh, my opponent uh, believes more that the tradition and Scripture are kind of on the same plane. Second Thessalonians 2.15 says this, just we have the text in our minds. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Notice what is happening here. The traditions in this text are either spoken word or by letter. The same traditions. And what my opponent suggested from this text, I believe, is that there are differences. There are things not in the word of God uh, that are in tradition, and we need to give them the same authority. And so uh, that is a, that is a misuse of the text, if that's what he was referring to. Um, uh my opponent said that there are household baptisms and this, this, there's this unit uh, concept and that these children will inherit faith. He said that many times. Here's my question. Always? Always. Does, does every single person in a Christian household become a Christian afterwards because of their influence? If not, then we, we have some problems here. First, uh, uh, Corinthians 10.1 was cited about Moses and this parallelism with being baptized into Moses in the Old Testament. Oh, I, have, I have a couple questions here. First, why are we going there to understand who should be baptized? What about the, the more clear things, the pattern of the early church, Jesus' institution of baptism in Matthew, the unfolding of that institution throughout the first hundred years of history? I think that would be the first place to go. Now, second, there are problems with this argument in general from 1 Corinthians 10. Um, the point of the whole text is that um, it's not talking about uh, baptism that's not that's not the context it's, it's trying to prevent the corinthians from committing adultery and uh i understand the stress on all uh we were all baptized in moses all all that's that's used several times uh seems uh to demonstrate you know that okay all infants all this but the point of that is not age groups the point is to establish the uh the the, the corporate nature of sin and if one is going to appeal to verse 2 in this text to establish who should be baptized, all were baptized into Moses, we got to be consistent and give the Lord's table, that's the spiritual food and spiritual drink, as my opponent agrees, in verse 3, to infants as well. you got to believe in, in paedo-communion uh, if you're going to say that this, this text supports uh, infant baptism. And I like what Abizi Murray says. He says uh, on this text, certainly all were baptized and all received the Eucharist. Men, women, children, infants, good and bad, believing and scarce believing. Talking about the Old Testament now. On this argument, it must be maintained that Paul specifically intended that infants, children, good and bad adults, believing and indifferent to faith should be partakers of the Eucharist. For had he thought otherwise, he should have corrected the Old Testament example. And so uh, if my opponent's going to be consistent here, 
we should be giving baptism to unbelievers because unbelievers, and didn't matter what age or who they were, were baptized into Moses in that exodus. He mentioned at Colossians chapter 2, uh, supposedly this establishes a, a connection between circumcision and um, uh, New Testament baptism. This has been abused for centuries. It literally has. Uh, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Uh, by a paedo-baptist, this has been documented over and over and over again. I'd refer you to Martin Salter's essay, and Melaos. I'd refer you to um, uh, Richard Barcelo's essay in the, in the Reformed Baptist Theological Review, etc. Even if circumcision was a sign of the covenant, in the same way that baptism is a sign of the covenant, the covenants and covenant members they represent are very different. Circumcision was a token for the Abrahamic and Mosaic Covenant, where members of the covenant included both the faithful and the wicked. Circumcision had no correlation to spiritual condition. Ishmael and Esau were circumcised just like Isaac and Jacob. But those in the New Covenant, however, are all believers, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Also, the meaning of circumcision and baptism are very different. They cannot simply be seen as being a mere sign of the covenant. Circumcision marked out a male line of descent from Abraham to David to Christ. That's not true for Christian baptism. Circumcision also served as a physical sign to mark out a nation. That's not true for baptism either. Circumcision was part of Mosaic law. That's not true for baptism. Uh, fourth, uh, the Old Testament circumcision baptism uh, argument is fraught with inconsistencies. What the Pentecostal is essentially arguing is that we should determine who should be baptized by who is circumcised in the Old Testament since both are tokens of the covenant. Infants were circumcised in the Old Testament prior to Christ, so infants after Christ in the New Testament uh, should be baptized. But there's a whole lot more people who are being circumcised in the Old Testament than infants. That causes all kinds of problems. Household slaves, servants, for example, were circumcised together with the rest of the household. Why doesn't the Eastern Orthodox baptize the entire family, teenagers, servants alike, when the parents convert to Christianity? That's a, that's a question I'm going to ask my uh, opponent during cross-examination. What about uh, circumcision was only for males? If we're going to say, well, in the Old Testament, circum- uh, infants were circumcised, so uh, today bap- uh, infants should be baptized. Why are we baptizing women? It uh, doesn't seem to make a lot of sense there. And there's all kinds of other uh, consistencies. Uh, my opponent went on and said uh, that you know children are disciples. Children have faith. I, I don't disagree with that. I don't dispute that children can have saving faith. The question is infants. Now, he mentioned John uh, leaping for joy. I don't think that was the type uh, of what we're talking about is saving faith. I don't think that's what's being asserted there. Um, Jesus uh, praised by babes and sucklings uh, is what my opponent said. And this is a demonstration of, uh, you know, that the children can have faith. Well, Regarding Luke 18, Matthew uh, 18, Matthew 19, 13 through 15, the children are not even said to be in the kingdom. We got to remember that. Uh, here's what D.A. Carson said in his commentary. Jesus does not want the little children prevented from coming to him, not because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, that's the Pado-Baptist assertion, but because the kingdom of heaven belongs to those like them. So also Mark and Luke stressing childlike faith. Jesus receives them because they are an excellent object lesson in the kind of humility and faith he finds acceptable. That's why Jesus compares children to uh, to the kind of faith that we need to have. Now, second, if it is suggested that these children had faith, 
That undermines the very point paedo-baptists are trying to demonstrate, namely that those incapable of having saving faith, like, like infants, should be considered in the covenant and thus baptized. Third, none of the parents of the children in these texts are identified as believers. They're not even mentioned. Uh, reference uh, Matthew 21:16, another one of those children uh, faith texts. Uh, obviously, it's more than asserting that these are proper uh, subjects of, of Christ's kingdom. But what, what, what's really being said here is that children and infants are part of the church and so should be baptized, and Matthew 21 demonstrates this. But that's not what the text is asserting. All this is really happening is children say, Hosanna to the son of David. And this event uh, is noted as a fulfillment of prophecy, Psalm 8-2. Beyond that, the main thrust of the text is, is, is controversial, or un- uncontroversial. The point is, if God can speak through babies from the lesser to the greater, how much more through children... And if children, by the same logic, how much more ought the religious leaders join in? And we could go more on about that. Proverbs uh, was cited, train a child in the way he must go. I totally agree. That is a good principle. Is it really suggesting that every single child who's trained will never fall, go astray? I don't think it's saying that. Um, First Peter uh, was cited uh, for 21, baptism now saves you. We're out of time. Uh, I'd love to get into that text. Maybe we'll have time during the cross-examination because it is uh, very much misused. And I uh, hope you're taking notes and uh, look forward to the upcoming sections. Okay, thank you, Jamin. <clears throat> now, Lawrence, uh, when you begin speaking, I'll start your 10-minute timer. Okay, and uh, thank you, Jamin, for uh, for your, your points. Uh, they are... Uh, obviously important to discuss and uh, as we both know there's little time to really cover them i wanted just to um, uh, add one or two more things uh, and then um, directly engage your uh, your points something that is uh, significant uh, in what you said is that you say well i agree uh, that uh, say toddlers or children can have faith that they can be discipled say well but infants i'm not so sure and this leads to the question of these then artificial, arbitrary limits that uh, one needs to establish. At what point uh, is it that two, three, four years old is the faith deemed sufficient to allow for baptism? And I would argue that uh, faith needs to be understood in in this particular context, Hebrews 11 verse 1, and I will um, read it uh, from what I'm, from my own Greek, so to speak. Faith is the foundation or slash confidence or basis of things hoped for, the certainty of things unseen. And it is exactly what infants have and are given in a family that is in Christ. They have this foundation, they have this confidence, this basis, and this certainty. And this theme of assurance is extremely important because if indeed we accept that there is a normative way, a sure way, which is the path of faith, of baptism, of communion in the body and blood of the Lord, whether we see them as being symbolic or having more reality, uh, these things are important when we have uh, children and especially in areas or in eras when a child uh, may in fact uh, not live very long. Another point is that I think we have to understand that, though it's strange but true, uh, we have no choice 
we have no choice as, as creatures but to kneel to Christ as the king. There is no option uh, given ultimately uh, to submit to the Lord. We, we tell our children that's the way it is, that there is a God and there is a Savior and there is uh, that, that order that is just real. And so this idea of, of, um, of ultimately choice is a uh, personal choice at some age uh, is, is, I think, problematic. Uh, we are disciples, they are disciples, and that's the way it is. A practical question would be, uh, then, uh, can children be taught and pray the Our Father? And if they do pray this, this prayer, then can they not uh, be baptized? In some of the points that were discussed, in fact, in, I'm going to start with the, the more recent points. Because what is clear? What is clear in the scriptures as a whole? Well, what is clear is that there is this household pattern. That there is this continuity uh, between the covenants. One is better, of course. Uh, one is uh, is obviously the the true powerful covenant. But there is this continuity um, in God's economy, and there is no dramatic break in the fact that uh, households uh, have faith, and therefore, uh, as the example is given of circumcision, or of course Passover, or the Red Sea, that children are to be brought into this relationship, to be brought into Christ. It was mentioned uh, on the point of tradition. Now, tradition is important because it's very obvious to those who read the New Testament, uh, I even refer here to uh, the Shape of Sola Scriptura, classic uh, book on the, the, the topic, that the scriptures do not give instructions, details on how these these mysteries, ordinances uh, are to be administered. And indeed, the tradition, uh, tradition of the church or the churches is very important to be informed. And I believe that it was never intended for these things which are sacred, these pearls, uh, to be openly uh, discussed, uh, really. Um, and to be detailed uh, in this open way. And St. Basil makes this point uh, very well. And so um, we, we have, I think, to look at the testimony of, the, uh, of these early writers, such as uh, uh, Origen, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, uh, Hippolytus, the year 215, uh, baptize first the children. If they can speak for themselves, let them do so. Otherwise, let their parents or other relatives speak for them. Uh, that's... Uh, accomplished of apostolic tradition and church practice uh, in Rome uh, about 215. In more general, we need to ask ourselves, if we are going to use the New Testament to argue mostly from silence, I would say, uh, by dismissing these uh, these types uh, that uh, children cannot be baptized, that they're not disciples uh, with faith that should be received in in that saving unity with uh, Christ and the church, using the New Testament, then we have to look at the fact that we accept a New Testament, which was, it was transmitted, protected, given to us by these early churches. It was finally, you could say, almost finalized in terms of discerning the canon around the year, say, 350 with Athanasius. And do we not also trust them if we trust them for the canon and I think preserve the text for for their acceptance that children were to be baptized. I don't think that um, 
Gaiman will, will dispute that uh, at the time of, of Athanasius, uh, during, say, the 300s, that this was a normative practice, or even, in fact, during the, the 200s, uh, referring to Cyprian, for example, and, uh, and other documents. So um, I think that we can make a strong case here for, for tradition as illumining uh, the scriptures. In the opening statement, then, uh, th- there is this... Um, uh, this first statement that I, I wrote down, that they can't be taught. And he said that they can't be taught, and I, I argued forcefully that children, in, fa- in fact, can be taught, and if we teach them, they will have faith, and that they will, uh, at least uh, if nothing goes wrong, they will indeed uh, trust us as parents, and that it's only later on that this faith may be challenged. Uh, however, I believe that it was, uh, of course, real faith, and it was a faith that uh, justified this uh, this baptism. Also, uh, Jamin said that, well, uh, Galatians 327, uh, as many as are baptized into Christ, cannot possibly apply to infants. And I have uh, actually explained that uh, we sing this very song, we read this very text, and we baptize infants when we robe them with the white vestment which represents the, 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 the Christ's own righteousness. And so indeed this text applies to children. In fact, it was mentioned that, uh, uh, that uh, 1 Corinthians 10 uh, talks about eating the, the spiritual food, justifies uh, infant communion, and I say absolutely, and, and this is why the Orthodox uh, churches and the ancient churches have always practiced infant communion, that this is, in fact, uh, uh, the logical conclusion of baptizing, baptizing infants and giving uh, them and to the parents and to the church that assurance that they are in Christ, in baptism, in uh, chrismation, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in the unity of, of the bread and the cup. And so what we, we see ultimately uh, is... Uh, an argument uh, from silence, uh, an argument that, uh, um, that well, we need to have at some point this personal decision at, at some age uh, that um, uh, will suddenly move an infant to a toddler and then to some acceptable age where that will be uh, somewhat arbitrarily uh, valid to be baptized. And, and this uh, viewpoint is very concerning. It is the same spirit which, in fact, if I may say respectfully, is used for abortion, where human beings in place an arbitrary line, uh, where you move from uh, being uh, uh, abortable, to use that term, uh, to, to, to being uh, a human being. There is no such discontinuity. There is no such arbitrary line. Uh, but indeed, when we are born from the will of the flesh with the, uh, in, in this fallen state, as the scriptures explained very well, when we are born in captivity and slavery, then it is uh, the desire of, of the church, uh, acting like a mother, so to speak, to, to transfer a child into the kingdom and to give the assurance that the faith which the child has, according to Hebrews 11, verse 1, uh, brings about unity with Christ and therefore uh, that assurance of salvation. There was a discussion then about um, uh, my, my qualms about um, baptizing adults. And, and the reason is is that 
uh, it is very clear and, and agreed uh, that uh, it's difficult to know if faith is genuine and, um, and therefore um, there is no, no difference ultimately uh, in this case and we're out of time so I will discuss this uh, during the Q&A. Okay, thank you, Lawrence. Uh, at this point now, we'll move into cross-examination, and the first round of cross-examination will begin with Lawrence asking Jamin. So, Lawrence, when you're ready, I'll start your 10-minute timer. Okay. Um, I'm not sure how long we have for each question, but uh, hopefully we can, you know, we can go uh, rather fast, but uh, I have about uh, eight short questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, Jamin, at what age... Do you think that faith is real, uh, can be expressed, and and baptism possible, and then who would decide? Uh, well, I think uh, we're both in the same boat with this question. I mean, whether a person is uh, five years old or uh, uh, you know twenty five, fifty years old, uh, the pastors of the church uh, should decide when. A, uh, a person has demonstrated a credible saving faith. And so that age, it might be 14, might be 22, might be, might be 65. Age doesn't really matter. It's whenever a person has a credible confession of faith. And that's something you have to decide as much as me. Uh, when somebody goes to apply to be baptized, what are we going to do? So we have to answer some questions there. Okay. Uh, though you, 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 in your, in your view, it cannot be one year, uh, a one-year-old child. It cannot be two years old. I mean, do you see there's, you know... I, I'm, in, in theory, it could be if there was a one-year-old uh, that would demonstrate, you know, saving faith. I, I don't know of any, so... Okay, no, uh, okay. so um, would you agree that um, a child who is in danger, who may die, should or could be baptized, uh, at least for the assurance that he or she is in Christ? Uh, no, because I don't think uh, baptism gives assurance of salvation. Okay, all right. So, um, so you would just let the child uh, die unbaptized, uh, un- unconfirmed, uncommuned. Uh, is because baptism is not to save anybody or regenerate them. Uh, I would, I would. I would grab um, all the medical tools as fast as possible instead of uh, a, a bowl of water. So I try to save the child's life, in other words. Um, but, oh, okay. uh, you know, their, their eternal destiny is not in my hands. That's in God's hands. Okay. That's just, uh, just some, some, you know, practical uh, questions. Um, sure. in, in view um, of the fact um, that all of the ancient churches today, Okay, uh, say you know Coptic, uh, Ethiopian, Armenian, Orthodox, even Roman Catholic, and many um, uh, Protestant churches, uh, but mostly ancient churches, and also, as I think you mentioned, the uh, writers of the 200s and 300s, except for Tertullian, support infant baptism. Uh, would you not agree that the burden of proof would be on your side, not mine? That is a good question, and I disagree uh, that the burden of proof is on my side for several reasons. First of all, uh, what's most important is what uh, the, the history of the early church says. That means, first of all, Acts and the New Testament and the apostolic church. What happened there? What is taught there? Second is the immediate successors of that church. We're talking about uh, the, the next hundred years. What happened during that period? 
Well, uh, Justin's apology, Aristides' apology, the Didache, they all teach believers' baptism. And so I think that's, it's just like textual criticism in a sense. Uh, the earliest manuscripts are, are, I believe, are generally better, reliable, because uh, they're not susceptible to so much corruption. Similarly, though it's not, not the same, I, I understand that, um, the earliest witness and the earliest history of the Christian church, uh, I probably give some weight to, uh, than, you know, the, the next, like, like a thousand years afterwards and, and when Rome has, has done all kinds of crazy things and, and stuff like that. Okay, I'm not, I'm not sure where you, um, find Justin Martyr, uh, denying, uh, or teaching, uh, that only believers are baptized. It would be interesting to analyze Justin. Um, however, <laughs> Um, for example, when you look at, uh, say, you know, Origen and Cyprian were in the 250s, but, the, but there, there's intense persecutions. I mean, the Christians are struggling to preserve their faith, to preserve the scriptures, they're dying for it. Mm-hmm. So he's saying that they, they, uh, that they changed something so important, uh, that Origen is wrong when he says that he was troubled so much, this is not an apostolic command. And you then rely on what I would say is is silence, uh, reference to households, which is unclear to dismiss that that evidence, right? I, mean, uh, I I I just I just remember I didn't answer uh, the last question fully. I said I, there was two reasons. I only gave you one. Okay, so is okay. that right? I'll, I'll sure. answer the second half. No, sure, that's fine. Okay. Um, the second reason why I don't think the burden of proof is on me for the historical argument is because the reasons for infants being baptized consistently changed. Sometimes it was to regenerate a person. Sometimes it was to get rid of original sin. Uh, you get up into the Reformation period. It's a sign of a covenant. You got the circumcision parallel going on. I think the inconsistency in why infants are being baptized throughout the whole of, of church history, as you mentioned, is another reason to doubt whether it's truly a credible belief. Now, to answer this question that you just asked, uh, I guess you might have to rephrase it, but it just sounded like you're, uh, you're basically asking, how can Origen be wrong? Well, I think Origen, you know, like any human being, is wrong in all kinds of things. I think human beings are, are fallible. Uh, you know, Origen certainly had some interesting perspectives on Scripture, uh, as of a lot of the church fathers, and, uh, you know, we all have our differences in theology. Um but yeah, I think uh, Origen is wrong when it comes to infant baptism, if, if that's what he taught. Okay, well, you know, he um, uh, to make it into a question, uh, uh, you know, or um, you know, do you not see that Origen is simply bearing witness as just someone who says, well, that's just the way it's done, or say under Cyprian, there's this council, they say, well, you know, should we baptize at eight days old? Should we take into account any of these? Do you not see that it simply is a fact that uh, even before the scriptures are fully, you could say, preserved, discerned, that this is the established practice? No, uh, as long as there, there is no historical record of infant baptism in the first century, uh, or in the decades following. So I don't see, I don't care if somebody says, um, you know, I mean, people, people today say that infant baptism was practiced during the, the, the New Testament church. And you can say all kinds of things, but, uh, it's not true. We don't have any evidence of that. We need some primary sources here. We need to see where that happened in the first and second centuries. So. So, but but you would agree, as a question again, do you not agree that there is no negative evidence uh, that infants were explicitly rejected, there's no such uh, uh, proof, and that uh, there's a debate over 
the nature of these households and that there is definitely an <laughs> argument there among um, uh, scholars uh, regarding what happened during that first century. However, my point was that do you not see that those who came a bit after who can write about the early or practice like Origen uh, uh, says, well, that's it. It is apostolic, and it was done. Uh, uh, I um, f- first of all, I reject the uh, the way it's framed, talking about how infants are rejected. That obviously assumes that they're just automatically included. I think all people are born into sin. We're all outside the grace of God to begin with. So it's about who is included, who should be baptized, not who should be rejected from baptism. That's the question. So uh, second of all, again, uh, I gave you three uh, witnesses earlier to origin that uh, support believers' baptism. I can read from some of them. Uh, I have an essay in front of me um, that, that, that uh, testifies to that. Uh, so I don't see what the, the weight is in going to people later in, in a certain section. It's like, okay, yeah, uh, origin and certain centuries of the church affirmed infant baptism. They said that it was apostolic practice. Uh, I, I don't believe it. Okay, because, you know, I would certainly, uh, we don't have time, but uh, disagree that there are any witnesses except for for Tertullian, who was, in fact, kind of a radical Anabaptist uh, who left uh, the church uh, that would be uh, against uh, its well, baptism. Uh, well, I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, these three witnesses, Justin, Aristides, and the Didache, are rejecting infant baptism. I'm saying that from their teaching, it is believer's baptism, okay? They don't go out and say, well, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't baptize infants. They don't have to because that's not the practice. They're just going. Uh, they're, they're just teaching believers baptism. Those who should uh, be baptized are those who repent and have faith. Okay. Um, do you not see how you could say arbitrary? Um, you could say there's this impression that, um, that ultimately. Um, by letting someone step forward, you know, at uh, say 14, um, you know, you you kind of told uh, a boy, well, you can't, uh, uh, you know, be baptized uh, as a fiat or commune. That then he has to make that statement at some age. That there's kind of the pressure of the peers. That it ultimately becomes more man-centered, and, and seems almost to to defeat the very doctrine of grace, which you 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 want to promote. I, I'm and, very and con- very confused. Yeah. I'm very confused. Um, I'm not, nobody's putting any pressure on children. I mean, hope we wouldn't do that. I mean, certainly we should preach the gospel to our children. We should teach them the way of the Lord, teach them the truth. Um, but as far as, you know, I'm, I'm not, if, if a 14 year old came up to me and said, uh, or if a 12 year old came up to me and, and if I was a pastor and said, I want to be baptized, I'm not going to say, no, you're not old enough. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to them. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, do what I would do with anyone who comes up to a pastor and makes that kind of uh, evaluation. So it's it's not a rejection. Okay. Um, Jamin, you now have 10 minutes to cross-examine Lawrence. <clears throat> All right, thank you, and uh, thanks again uh, to both of you for putting on this debate. And uh, Dr. Uh, Cleanwork, do you agree that no one during the apostolic times commanded or practiced infant baptism? And if there is a historical record of it happening, what record do you have? Yeah, I, I contend that uh, infants uh, were baptized during apostolic times. Uh, I base this view on uh, uh, the fact that, as a pattern, households were baptized, that there's this typology of circumcision, and uh, this, in fact, uh, 
this uh, Old Testament uh, pattern of household faith, and that uh, uh, I, I take the view that um, if uh, infants were not allowed to be baptized, if if there was not only this, you know, this uh, the, the, this this radical break, I think would have been very visible, would have been discussed. And uh, as I mentioned, I think that we have evidence that uh, people like Polycarp seem to have been discipled, discipled since a uh, very young age. Uh, uh, post-apostolic writers say it's apostolic as a custom, and I will go with them uh, as opposed to us standing uh, 2,000 years uh, in the distance. Um, so you do you know for certain that, say, for example, in the household uh, texts that there were infants in the household, you know that for certain? No. In fact, I, I think it's impossible to tell. Uh, you gave a fairly good uh, okay. analysis of uh, reasons why perhaps there were no infants or toddlers. However, okay. there is clearly... Uh, again, this pattern is that it's it's a household event. The uh, the head of the household uh, has faith. He shares his faith with his family, uh, just as Abraham did. There is now this this sign of faith, and it would seem very clear to me that uh, an infant would also be baptized or a toddler on this principle. But I, I wouldn't uh, say make the case that you can prove, uh, make a strong case that uh, the household references, which are rather few when relevant. Uh, can be used uh, but, for that purpose. And then you, you mentioned Colossians 2 and the circumcision parallel, but that would be for a reason for infants being baptized. I'm asking for a historical record that baptisms occurred. Like, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, not a theological argument. I'm asking for the historical argument. Were there any infant baptisms? Can we know for certain that they were in the in the apostolic period? Uh, no, from, from writings that date... Uh, there okay. is no actual mention of, in, of a child being baptized. Certainly, I, I think okay. that's clear from right. what we have in, in Scripture, yeah. All right, thank you. Um, in your rebuttal period, you made the charge that I was making an argument from silence. Uh, what exactly are you saying here? What, what argument is that? Well, the what's happening is that we we don't have texts in the New Testament that uh, say only believers are baptized, we don't have uh, texts that say that infants were not baptized or were not part of these households. And so I think what we see when we hear, you know, classic debate, you know, probably better than, than ours, you know, between, say, White and Shishko, and you look at this this whole, uh, there are so many debates, is that there is a lot of, of silence, and I explain why. I think I can take the view, as was taught by the Church Fathers, that uh, baptism the Lord's Supper are inner events in the life of the church that uh, they are part of, of tradition, what is handed down, mm-hmm. as St. Basil said, in, in, by way of the okay. mysteries, and therefore that's why we have this silence. Okay. Um, can a, uh, a five-day-old baby understand their need for a Savior, understand that Christ was resurrected 2,000 years ago, and consciously turn from their sin and embrace that Jesus, uh, the Jesus of the Scriptures? Well, the question is, is phrased in a way that I can answer, of course not. Uh, a child, though, uh, as you say, has a need for a savior, uh, has, uh, a, uh, there is a, a master and lord of the universe. A child can have the saving faith of Hebrews 11.1, uh, expressed and given through baptism, that foundation in the body of Christ. And okay, so but, but the if, child, there, if, if there is, is a disciple, yeah. 
if 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 they're I'm talking about like a like a real infant, like fresh out of the womb, you know, wet behind the ears. Um, you're saying you said no, of course not. Um, and now, of course, my question is, well, when? I mean, now you're you're stuck with the question that you asked me. No, what I'm saying is that uh, is that this child has the uh, uh, the type of um, of faith as uh, and as a status of a you know being from a Christian family, being a pupil is going to be a disciple, of course, of the Lord, and needs to be in fact rescued from uh, the power of death through uh, unity with the body of Christ and communion, which is so clearly explained in John chapter six, and therefore this child needs to be baptized. Uh, can be baptized, and uh, like I argued, I think it is the Lord's and the Apostles' command that we do so. Mm-hmm. You appeal to the authority of the Church and Church tradition in order to answer the subject of tonight's debate. Uh, has Does the Church ever make mistakes? Has it ever made mistakes in doctrine? Well, the, the Church, uh, you know, properly defined, which is simply the, the local body under its bishop and presbyters, uh, can make mistakes, of course, in many ways. However, when the church does what it is doing, which is, uh, in this case, to unite someone to Jesus Christ in, in these uh, God-established uh, events, the church cannot fail. It's infallible because, uh, of course, it does what the Lord uh, does, and the Lord cannot fail. Is it possible that the Eastern Orthodox Church is mistaken with uh, infant baptism? No, and the reason is, is quite simple, is that, um, you know, the Lord is the wise man who built his uh, church, uh, in fact, as a network of churches uh, upon the rock, and it would be really, I think, absurd to think that all of the holy churches that the apostles established uh, were off the deep end, even during persecutions, and even before the New Testament was finalized and really given in its final form in in the 400s. So, no, it's impossible. I, I, I might as well, you know, uh, say that the, the Lord is not the wise man and change my faith. So, uh, I mean, is, if, if not for infant baptism, on any matter of doctrine, is the Eastern Orthodox Church in error? Well, you know, what's... If, if you look at the dogmas that have been uh, given to Christians through the centuries, uh, one, there's not an enormous amount of dogmas. You can look at the, uh, at the, the, the seven councils. The faith that we proclaim at baptism is the, the Nicene Creed, which in fact was a baptismal creed, and I believe that creed uh, is infallible and cannot be wrong. Uh, in your rebuttal period, you affirm that Pado communion is the logical conclusion of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. Uh, but I think you missed that unbelievers were also baptized into Moses. They went through the Exodus. So why don't we baptize adult unbelievers since they were in this in this parallel that's made? Well, you know, I think we 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 cannot stretch uh, the text beyond the the precise use um, uh, that is I made. Agree. So I, I would say that um, there's this. You know, there's this one text that does show that there's this language of baptism, this need to be baptized in Moses or baptized in Christ, that um, there's this language that included uh, households and infants. So I'm sure we can stretch the text and the context, uh, <laughs> but I think it, it is a, a useful text. In uh, the rebuttal period, uh, you made the charge... Uh or, yeah, I think it was in the rebuttal period. You made the charge that I hold to an arbitrary line as to when a person should be baptized. Uh, you know, that I, speci- I set a specific age. Uh, well, 
just so we're clear, I don't set a specific age, and you know, I know some people do, and I think that's unbiblical. But again, we're both in the same boat. Whether a person is one year old or fifty years old, the pastor needs to decide if that person should be baptized. So why is my position any more arbitrary than yours, since we both have to make that choice when a person's ready? Well, I think it's it's a fair point, and I think I'm glad I'm glad you bring it. There is a slight difference, though, which is that we do not make uh, that line, you know, as far as as the, the young years. Uh, anyone who is a child or toddler who is being pupiled, discipled by a Christian family mm-hmm. uh, can be baptized. And I've baptized, um, you know, say I was, I think it was a three or four year old. And, uh, and, um, b- because, you know, he expressed the kind of faith that he had received, you know, uh, and that was sufficient, uh, I think, uh, to baptize him and that was, that was proper. <coughs> Uh, was anyone in the Old Testament given circumcision specifically because their parents were believers? Well, it would seem to me, and I, I, I'm not sure I'm prepared for this question, that uh, that Isaac, um, uh, I'm not sure what the age the ages were, but I'm sure that they, when they were first circumcised, that uh, that yeah, infants were baptized because the parents were believers. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm out of time. Okay. Okay, well, there you have it, part one of the debate on infant baptism. I apologize for the audio quality of this outro. I had to add it from my laptop microphone at home. Uh, Join me for the next episode of the podcast, in which you'll hear part two of the debate. Until then...